0: Come in, Greg Brooks. Hooray, hurrah! the smartest man in the world. Proofcast. once again takes to the ether. Here from the salubrious confines of Western Hollywood's most exhilarating and exalted comedy cub, uh, the Bar Lubitsch. Here in the back room, the ruby red... Definition all about us and uh, uh, what you can't see of course on the side are 19th century nudes poised over me uh, a, a giant mirror behind me of course once again revealing I have no male pattern baldness <laughs> which is the theme of tonight's show uh, no thank you very much for coming out if you're listening out there in Prude Castle this is an awesome time uh, to grind up some quaaludes that you've had in the freezer since 1981 <laughs> and uh, make a gelatin gel- make a pudding out of them. <laughs> A gelatinous pudding. Uh, I don't know where to begin this week We're going to have to go very quickly I have 750 pages of material and uh, but, but only 7 short hours To squeeze it into So uh, let's get underway right away I received something tonight that I've never received before Surely you've gotten a letter uh, placed on your uh, Performance area desk before uh, Yes, thank you for asking, I have But uh, rarely in um, Big Chief Yellow tablet binder paper uh, All that's missing are the three holes So that I can put it in my binder when I get home uh, I would have preferred to receive of a peachy folder uh, that had the guy. Thank you for the two people who remember peachy <laughs> folders. Uh, a lot of you grew up in the post-computer uh, era, so your whole life was dominated by phones and um, having that gaping hole uh, where your personality striving to fill. And uh, but if you're from the paper era, as I am, uh, the space age when I was born, I was born before the information age. I was born in the space age, and uh, really, what was the upshot of that? Mm. Uh <laughs> Let me put it this way. We have a space station, but it takes 2 hours to get to LAX. <laughs> so I don't know if progress is the right word, or we took a left turn somewhere, or we're just doing it concentric circles, or, or, the, the, or, or a giant oval like a comet, and the perihelion is still so far away. Uh, uh, in any case, I received this letter on paper here, written in pen tonight. Uh, Eric is the one who does the booking here at Bar Lubitsch, and um, we are in communication with him. And he wrote, Hi, Greg! Exclamation point. I'm going to let that one stand. <laughs> Sorry I missed you tonight And these don't cover your If these don't cover your drinks Mike will take care of the rest We love your show at Lubitsch Have a great night Many thanks Eric and Bar Lubitsch That's the first time I've received a note We've been playing here since 1968 our first show was right after Sgt. Pepper came out and I played the entire album and it's in, uh, all of it at once uh, I, I, at once I didn't even play through the cuts we just it was over and um, George Harrison was here that night uh, he was in West Hollywood what a night that was Tommy Smothers they got in a fight welcome um, to the show thank you for sitting and uh, so I have I actually received drink tickets from Bar Lubitsch which by the way after five years of working here I didn't know they had <laughs> You'd have thought they'd crack these out like the first week we came in and what was it, September 2010, October, somewhere in there. That they'd have gone, oh, you get drink tickets. Instead, it's just been a negotiation for five years <laughs> until this night when the king's currency has finally been made available and the royal road can once again be traveled unmolested by uh, weary journeyers uh, no longer fearing uh, for the uh, immigrants who come to the sanctuary cities and wait uh, to kill innocent white people as <laughs> part of their sworn vow to their foreign overlords uh, we're here to clear that up tonight uh, So I've got drink tickets, i got a drink uh, I have a yellow piece of paper I can doodle on while I talk to you I have a pen that I received I was in Tacoma and Spokane over the weekend And uh, no, we didn't do a podcast in Spokane, but we should have um, It was really good fun, and I want to thank the comedy clubs there And they gave me lots of groovy swank And one of them was uh, this, which is the uh, the Spokane Indians Um, however their word uh, uh, for Spokane is written in the Indian language on the pen it says Spikwini right Uh, that's the Chumash word for uh, uh, Spokane so when the guy gave it to me he's like this is the only team named the Indians that uses the actual Indians language on their (laughs) memorabilia and I was like that is so right on I could die (laughs) you know what I could do treat myself to a smallpox outbreak (laughs) If you thought that was edgy, this show's not going to be for you tonight. <laughs> we have not yet begun to edge, as they say, in the business. <laughs> and there's only one outcome to that. Uh, yeah. Uh, first of all, they're called the Indians, but they at least have the decency to not have a grinning... What, was, what is Cleveland's Indians logo? Wahoo. Yeah, Wahoo. Chief Wahoo. And uh, that, that when I was little, the... Um, uh, who was it used to do a dance uh, in Atlanta? Chief Nakahoma would come out of a teepee in, in the outfield. In the Oh, yeah, behind the fence. And an Indian would come out of a teepee and do a war dance every time the Braves hit a homer. And uh, I know the crowd's gone quiet. I felt the same way. <laughs> my, I was as proud of that as I was when Jane Fonda was dating Ted Turner and she did the Tomahawk Chalk on TV. That was my other <laughs> proudest moment, to see someone who went to, to Hanoi during the war uh, to protest uh, Americans' uh, involvement in Vietnam, do the tomahawk chop. I thought, lifetimes are so long and complicated. <laughs> You never know who you're going to be eating a popsicle with. You know what I mean? I mean, you might be sitting here deriding the overriding dominant oligarchy. And then the next thing you know, Mike Pence is like, you want to split this? And you're like, thank you, Mr. Pence. And then, fucking, I love strawberry. And he's like, me too. You know, in Indiana, there's three things we like. Blocking women's rights and uh, and strawberry popsicles. I'm glad you could share it with me. Thank you for being a Christian. I hope you are. It's my experience That sometimes the biggest fascists Can be quite nice indeed And that sometimes The biggest liberals Can be uh, the giantest As they say in England Bell ends That you'll ever Run up against uh, uh, One comes to mind uh, I won't name his name But it's Ken Livingston And uh, He was mayor of London uh, But before that He was an MP Once upon a day And then he was known As Red Ken For his proclivities Toward the left And uh He got bike lanes put everywhere in London. So now it's impossible to get from one side of the city to the other. And uh, thank you. That was a joke. But okay, maybe it was a little Adam Carolla for your taste. I don't know. Every time I go on Adam's show, he's like people on bikes, you know, and you're like, what happened? What did they do to you? And it's like, oh, they're blocking your car's progress. I get it. In London, the bike lanes are where the bus lanes are. And the buses are paramount in London. The buses take up the whole road, right? And the rest is left to you. And then therefore, so when the bike lanes are full, then the bus can't go around. And then you're caught behind your car forever. And you sit in a cab. And you rue the day that you were born a privileged white person. (laughs) It all comes home. All the birds. I'm I'm going to wave these free tickets at you all night, by the way. Are you going to buy a round? I'd have to I'd have to really I'd have to do like a Doug Henning trick and, and rip them thank you the one person remembers Doug Henning he's gone now he's swirling in the magical heavens but he was a Canadian comedian of the early 70s and he wore a mullet uh, like kind of a modified uh, lesbian tennis player Bobby Goldsboro mullet and uh he wore satin pants and like a medallion and whatnot. This is 70s. He was a magician. This was before the David Copperfield took us back to the days that we didn't want to go back to of, 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 of magicians who actually posed the question, how does he do it? <laughs> like, well, with trickery and with camera effects, uh, that's how magic is produced. Uh, unless anyone thought people were actually able, like Merlin, to make like winged owls fly that are made of metal and shit like that. Um, uh, which I think the Greeks probably did. But I digress constantly. That's really the theme of the show. Uh, Doug Henning had slightly protuberant front teeth. Uh, I won't say they were buck, but I will say they were uh, noticeable. And Doug Henning would go like this. I'm going to take his cigarette paper and this because he was a hip 70s comic he took a rolling paper uh, on national TV and he tore it and then he tore it again 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 and then he went and it came back together and everybody went ooh and it was like right on camera how did he fucking do that it was magic and um, the fact that he used a rolling paper was not lost on me as a 12 year old <laughs> I was like can we do that we didn't in the 70s we didn't go what uh, as much as, we, as led to, we're led to believe it was more like say what uh and so uh I, I had a friend who worked for a was a Jennifer's friend a boyfriend uh did a gig with David Copperfield in uh, Paris. Uh, they had hired people to be in the show uh because surprise surprise uh they what we call uh, uh it, an ancient term for it would be clack I suppose a plant uh, they, they, he plants a bunch of people in the show and then he brings them on stage and they assist him in his tricks and one of the tricks David Copperfield did was a levitating table which of course was on wires and uh, they, uh, he at one point says to everybody now lift your hands up above the table right but the plants go like this but no one notices, right? Because you're all watching. Fuck, they all lifted their hands. And then, uh, David, uh, to a crowd of Parisians, and he made the table lift. And then he would say jokes. Uh, and if it didn't work um, in English, he'd go, "Stay un blog. That means it's a joke in French. And, uh, yeah. When we were being described the show, we were like, Fantastically, yeah. So what was it like to be in the David Copperfield show? Did it pay all right? Pfft. He is rich. You know, like it was fantastic. And you do it. We, we we only put our hands up like this. Right? That was how we were told the story, so it made it a thousand times better to have it from a skeptical Parisian point of view. The, the table is in a wire. Yeah. It does not rise because he has it on the wire. Shh a lot of vocal ejaculations and then you know well did you get paid you know American would go yeah it was 75 bucks it's great bought some Coors Light and then we left him in the hot tub in our hotel Lewis, our friend of the show, who's given us so many things, including the Maltese Falcon, uh, found a laserium concert program. I've talked about laserium way too much on the show. Uh, it was uh, an inconceivably primitive by our standards today, of course our standards being Avengers Assemble. Uh, that <laughs> a laser show of the 70s and we would go and they, we would get high and drive to Golden Gate Park in San Francisco which was exciting enough as it was and then uh, we'd go to this building and they would play rock music or spacey music and one guy was a laser artist and he would like make the lasers do crazy shapes and shit like that and it, like I say it was like somewhere between 2001 and pre-Star Wars you know what I mean so there'd be like a cloud shape but it would be rigid and it would just fly across the sky while the music was playing and I've already played almost everybody's song I've talked about it so much that I realized. Before he handed it to me, I knew what this was going to say in it. And that's the sad part. I haven't been to the show in 40 years. 40 years. A lot of people are listening, like, that's three of my lifetimes. Uh, continuous ongoing concerts in these cities Los Angeles at the Griffiths Observatory. Oh, yeah. Kyoto, Japan at the KBS Laserium Center. Uh, And Chapel Hill, right? Of course, University Uh, entrance was Synergy. That one I don't remember. Then Introduction, Prolumnia by Clarion, Deep Space. These are the names of the uh, uh, you know acts. Uh, Neptune from the Planets by Holst. That I remember. Uh, Cosmic Rays was Tank by ELP. If anyone remembers (laughs) that one, Tank's like you know, fucking Emerson, Lake and Palmer, you know. Uh, and then uh, the one that I loved was of course uh, uh, Gimme Shelter by Cal Jader uh, played on the vibraphones I know I played it a couple do you have that one anywhere nearby I'll come back and I'll run by you again on that Uh, Bolero they played by Emerson Lake and Palmer Uh, Echoes by Pink Floyd Uh, Hoedown by Emerson Lake and Palmer there was a lot of Emerson Lake and Palmer in this show because they did space did you find it Cal Jader It's C-A-L And the last name is T-J-A-D-E-R Because he don't play by rules (laughs) He's a cold-hearted snake He took you by surprise (laughs) Uh Uh-oh He's been telling lies Give me shelter Yeah, it's on there This is the part of the show I've had more than one And by the way, they were all men More than one man has written in and gone Can't you fucking organize the music you're gonna play before you start? (laughs) Do you know the song Gimme Shelter by The Stones? This is Gimme Shelter played on vibraphones. Turn that shit up. If you were on Mushrooms tonight, this might be the best show you've ever been to. If anyone has any molly, blow it in the air and we'll all just... Right. You're not going back to the Stones version. You're going to seek out Cal Jader. I know it. Thank you for this, Lewis. And the other part I wanted you to know about Lewis because he has been extraordinarily generous with Jennifer and I and given us many treasured gifts. Um, he photocopied this. He didn't give me the original program. <laughs> this is actually what we would have called when I was young a mimeograph a photostatic copy if you will of the laserium program which is fine Uh, it's nice it's it's probably my second most treasured 70's possession outside the one that Jennifer Goneft the minute I brought it home which was a program from one of the Ohio Players world tours and with full color photographs of the Ohio Players in Sonic Cocaine Destruction and (laughs) That one, Jennifer's like, I'm having that. And that went right on her desk. I didn't stand a chance with that one because she really, really loves the Ohio players. As Wolfman Jack says when he introduces them, and you will be watching this later on YouTube, (laughs) he's on Midnight Special. And uh, the Ohio players, Same year as Liz About 75 uh, He goes uh, Now that we got The Ohio players they're Wolf, they're Wolf Woman's favorite group They make a howl At the moon And wag her tail <laughs> If I'm not, I'm not the Ohio players. Right? And then it's... With fucking smoke and shit. And then the lockers come out and fucking... It is fucking good. good. Do yourself a favor, audience. Or whatever you're calling yourself these days. Chris Jenkins another great friend the world's greatest idiots quotes and other things said by some stupid ass dummies by Dorothy Biggins I haven't looked at any of it somebody say something oh friendly it's that's so fantastic I wouldn't this is the, I wouldn't say she's a stupid ass dummy method acting oh I see it's it's broken up by categories oh Raquel Welch, I was asked to come to Chicago because Chicago is one of our 52 states. (laughs) Now, before you think I'm picking on Raquel Welch, because I'm not. David Hasselhoff, I've got taste. It's inbred in me. (laughs) That's undeniable. And what she said was factually
1: true.
0: I mean, you're looking at articles here. Uh, Gary Busey there's nothing like changes because nothing changes but changes (laughs) hang on a second (laughs) I want to say there's a syllogism somewhere near there but I don't think there is it's not even a bad Bowie lyric at this point it's just let me read that one again he got all meta on my ass. There's nothing like changes because nothing changes but changes. No. It still doesn't... It still doesn't make any sense. I like this one because I think Dorothy misunderstood Fran Lebowitz entirely. Fran Lebowitz, of course, is maybe the greatest wit of our era, and I mean that sincerely. And she said, you know, wit, like um, Oscar Levant or... Uh, uh, in the old days, uh, you know, Henry Morgan, the, the types they used to uh, have on telly or the, around the Algonquin round table, pe- Dorothy Parker, people who were known to be able to just break one off. At the Friars Club in the old days, it was George Burns. Groucho was supposed to be really funny, no question funny, but Burns was funnier than him and faster at the table, according to everyone. Who are you talking about? Old Jews. Um, <laughs> Fran Lebowitz falls into this category and I worship and adore her and her line is food is an important part of a balanced diet but that was a joke that's a joke it's not a damn idiotic thing that someone said she meant to say that and someone asked her why do you write so few words like she's got the least output of any famous author she has two slim tomes which are collections of articles and she wrote a column for an interview magazine in the old days called I Cover the Waterfront uh, which is what, the reason why she chose that was uh, someone asked Tennessee Williams uh, what his proclivities were towards sleeping with people and he said, I cover the waterfront. And so <laughs> and my other... My other favorite Tennessee Williams quote is uh, Gore Vidal's in a gay bar with him in the 40s, and uh, early 50s, and a drunk guy, I've told this one on the show before, but it's funny anyway, a drunk guy at the bar goes, I say live and let live, and Tennessee Williams turned to Gore Vidal and went, I don't see how he can have it any other way. <laughs> um... <laughs> uh, <laughs> they said to friend Leibowitz, how come your output's so small? And she said, because I write using my own blood. Or I write in my own blood. Uh, And then she has so many good ones. The one I've overused on the show, and I'm going to do it again now, is children are often sticky and rarely in a position to lend you an interesting sum of money. (laughs) And plants make their own food. Well, good for them. Call me when they make their own money. (laughs) And my other favorite one, smoking is a habit you can have your whole life. You, you've got to see the Friendly. But it's a documentary if you get any chance to see it. And, uh, all right, here's one from Al Gore. During my service in the United States Congress, I took the initiative in creating the internet. Oh, I remember that one.
1: <laughs>
0: he also said, and this one's a better Al Gore quote a zebra does not change its spots. <laughs> if you think about it, he's right unlike a change is a change and I like a change and the change will do you good and I'm Cheryl Crow with David Bowie on my ass uh, a, a, a zebra does not change its spots uh, oh George W. Bush what didn't he say well, this one's okay uh, Charles de Gaulle um, the former president of France China is a big country inhabited by many Chinese <laughs> he also brilliantly said how can you be expected to govern a country that has 240 kinds of cheese (laughs) (laughs) thank you for that Chris Uh, we're jumping right in tonight usually the the show never starts I almost said the snow never sharts uh, which is the name of my next album by the way the snow never sharts Uh, a zebra does not change its spots and the snow never sharts if anything it piddles Um, is anyone else warm or am I having menopause it's fucking hot, right? Yeah, yeah. Can we, can we uh, order out? Can we order from the front? I, w- I won't play any records while you're gone. Um, th- Ryan said thank you. Like, one, like I have the capacity to, and two, I said play any records. Um, like we have a, a, a stereo behind me, a hi-fi close and play that I can just whip over and spin a 45. Ryan, while you're out there, I have tickets. <laughs> he's so far from the tickets it was, they're being so nice tonight they wrote a note which we read before uh, and, uh, and had an exclamation point it's in cursive which yeah not block caps which is how I write And uh, really you write in block caps? yeah and I draw little pictures of stabby things um, the, <laughs> mostly I write the same sentence over and over again <laughs> Uh yeah, thank you, Mike. Will you crank up the air, my brother? Yep, that's not Thanks, man. No worries. Yeah. Cheers. Uh, I'm, I'm, at Endem's Corrections, Eric Estrada's, and... Uh, oh, here it comes. I can hear it. Oh, yeah, finally. I was wondering why I was sweating like a turnip up here. I know it can't be organ failure, because... Don't you smell toast first? Or is someone making toast? It's a very small room. If you're making toast, please make it for everyone. I prefer rye, lightly buttered, but I like a number five setting. Really? You like it that done? Just before it's burnt. I don't want it burnt, but I want it just before it's burnt. I'm giving you a lot of insight into my... You eat rye toast? Yeah. Yeah. You know in the restaurant when they come up to you and they go, what kind of toast did you like? I'm always like, rye. I think I've told this one before. I was in Nashville. There was a deli at the airport. A deli called the Brooklyn Deli at the airport in Nashville. So I ordered lox and eggs and she goes... um, what kind of toast do you like and I said Ry, rye toast and she goes we're out of rye bread and I went you are not allowed to be out of rye bread <laughs> the word deli is in your sign <laughs> you're not allowed to go there's no more bagels and you're not allowed to say there's no rye bread there's a million things you can say in Nashville we ain't got no more you know uh, deep fried lard puffs or whatever <laughs> rye bread get on that I'm not ordering white bread uh, I mean I did obviously I crumbled <laughs> I, I let the Christian dominance paradigm fucking weigh down on me and destroy my choice and that is why I'm urging you to vote this November and, ag- <laughs> and again in December <laughs> what was the mistake you're correcting from last week I could not come up when I was in Tacoma of the name of the singer for the divinals uh, who were a, a fabulous Australian rock band that started out super hard and got glamier as uh, time went on. And um, Chrissy, as she was known, or Christine Amflat, um, she, uh, she, she, she had this, like, b- bangs and whatnot, and she did this... She wore kind of a schoolgirl outfit, uh, because women never get judged on their own merits, I believe she was sometimes referred to as the female Angus Young, which is uh, an insult to Angus Young's everywhere. Uh, I don't mean that in her regard. I mean, uh, Angus Young is not the most attractive oil painting that ever was on a stage. And uh, she was her own unique, distinct character. Angus also does not sing. He bangs head. And uh, how, he, how his brain has not come uncotted from his skull is beyond my comprehension. I saw them in 1978, and it rocked. I never saw the divinals but I wanted to get her name right, uh, Chrissy Amplett, and the guitarist was Mark uh, McKendy, and they were the two that were in the group the whole time. There was, fantastically, when I looked up the Divinals today, a chart, a flow chart, of the ebbs and flows of the members of the band, <laughs> done in, yes, in red graph bar style, so they were a constant bar, and then other people were wavery bars that came in and out of different years during the Divinals' long career, which is exactly the way I don't want to read something about a rock band. Please... <laughs> Don't reduce rock to that for me. I want to see a picture of a guy upside down snorting coke off of a van, an anvil case with a Lufthansa stewardess attached to him. That's what I want to see. I want to see Chrissy Amphlett in that outfit she's wearing from I Touch Myself uh, on, floating in the air. That's what I want to see. I don't want to see a chart with Chrissy in it. You may remember the outfit she's wearing in the video. At one point, it appears to be simply a net, which is quite good. Uh, uh, Let's see here. Uh, I can't remember who sent me this, and I apologize to the people out there. I know I always ask you to write me, and I do read your letters mostly. Um, But uh, someone tweeted this to me, and I can't remember who, and Jennifer couldn't either. Uh, It's from a couple days ago. And uh, it's one of those cute animal stories that were so popular on the show here. I I have no children, so I only have animal stories to love and nurture. (laughs) I mean, if a child walked into this bar, I have uh, drink tickets, I would buy them. I would buy them a, What do kids drink? Cuvazier? What are they... Something... Lemoncello? You know, a kitty. Kitty. Cherry hearing. You know, something a kid would drink. What's that gold liquor? Apple, apple? Well, there's gold... You guys went hardcore on me. You don't give a child gold slogger. I know that much. I mean, think back to the first drink your parents gave you at the table, whether it was in a restaurant or whether it was a crib. A lot of times it's wine or beer. And the first time you have the beer taste, you're like, ooh, bitter. And then, of course, by 16, you're like, ooh, good. And uh, wine's always a little chancy the first time around because you th- you want you like grape juice at that point you want this unless uh, you were Jewish in which case you were given Mogan David when you were little and you took a, you took a shine to it immediately <laughs> you dived right in because Mogan David has that zesty zesty catchy flavor that uh, has been hooking Jewish alcoholics since the year chach. <laughs> that one I liked uh, but when my dad gave me a brandy sour I remember once when I was little um, where were you drinking? at Raffles in Singapore and
1: <laughs>
0: what can I tell you? he drank brandy sours they're foamy they come in a pony uh, that's what that drink the glass is called and um, yeah or, or no the pony they, it comes in a, a champagne glass a pony's the little one uh, you can get like if you were gonna like a child would drink B&B right? And the whole car goes quiet. <laughs> Greg, I would get a kid a shampoo with vanilla ice cream in it. Because those are delicious and very sweet. My, this is some creaky ass fucking furniture we got up here. Someone hasn't been down to third in a while. <laughs> Uh, with help from... This is the headline that I'm going to read for you. We, we probably should have some music here, but I don't want to play Hungry Like the Wolf. No, I mean uh, Wild Boars. Wouldn't it be great if I played Hungry Like the Wolf instead of Wild Boars? <laughs> I don't even think I have Hungry Like the Wolf on there. I don't think there's a lot of Duran Duran. I think I just got the one... I ha, believe me, I have it on CD. I have it on single. Oh, I've received it over the years. I have Wild Boars on every manner of conveyance. I have it on uh, Edison Cylinder and uh, LaserDisc and... Uh, uh, Tom Tom I have not done a lot of things What'd you pick? I love it Oh Alright Well it's not a very wi- Yeah uh, Let's have something uh, A little less wild boar oriented This is a story About a goat and a horse So where do you really begin? Yeah The divinals You know Yeah turn that up for a second I had the K-single of this. <laughs> Remember the casingle? I had the casingle of this and I was doing a gig in Irvine in ninety two. Quentin was running for president and I played it Nothing but this song for a whole weekend. I was by myself and I just played this song five million times. People got in the car with me, my friends came to visit me in Irvine and I just played this over and over and over. And after a while you're like, fuck yeah. <laughs> Three days. Come running. No and it's that syllabus ass, right? Um, There's really no better song uh, Than uh, I Touch Myself When you're talking about goats and
1: horses
0: (laughs) This took a turn for the Greek We're not going to be mating with them At any point and creating a new race In Europe or anything With help from the goat, Wiley Clydesdale goes on lamb for five days. A dwarf billy goat gave new meaning to the word scapegoat. No, he did not. My guess is that that goat barely has a glancing acquaintance with the phrase scapegoat probably lived its whole goat life blissfully unaware that there's a term called the scapegoat. Probably doesn't even know what a Judas goat is. As does many of the people right here in this room. When he busted out a surprisingly slippery Clydesdale. By the way, if you're writing about Clydesdales, never use the word slippery. Clydesdales are two things. Awesome and majestic. They're never slippery. If you've touched one, you'll know. They're as cool and dry as a snake. A dwarf billy goat... Yeah, the nearly one-ton horse named Budweiser. There's only... Lou Rawls. That's what I would have named the horse. He sang the best Budweiser theme and was a a genius of rhythm and blues. A nearly one-ton horse named Budweiser who goes by Buddy was safely wrangled back into his pen Sunday in the Santa Cruz Mountains, and this is to orient those who don't know California, on California's central coast.
1: Uh,
0: The goat named Lancelot knows how to butt open the stable gate and did just that Wednesday, letting his best friend escape. Owner Tamara Schmitz told the Santa Cruz Sentinel newspaper, Really? I don't find Ms. Schmitz the most credible source. (laughs) who's to say she didn't concoct this for the column inches well kitten died of boredom during this story I've never actually seen kittens take his own life during that I'm not a he I don't know what you are but you died is there any chance of anyone I have to I'll buy you a drink see how I tear it off I'm going thanks Chris I'm joking you can have all three I just thought it'd be funnier to tear it but no one left I'll wait till you're back Chris here's some more quotes no I'm joking another Clydesdale wow we're, this is going fast and furious we're being introduced to a lot of animals here there's Lancelot the goat uh, there's uh, Buddy the Cl- who answers to Buddy the Clydesdale whose name's, full name is Budweiser but let's not get formal um <laughs> And then now Harry also fled and was nabbed in a meadow the next day. But Buddy is more wary and wily, Schmitz said. <laughs> Buddy's very elusive, she said. He's not, let's see, let me rewrite this a little. Let me punch this up. This <laughs> up, 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 up. <laughs> Harry, another Clydesdale, also fled and was nabbed the next day in a meadow. But Schmitz asserts Buddy is more wily and infinitely more wary. He's not like the other horses She exclaimed through clenched teeth (laughs) But he's very elusive He's not attracted by meadows and other horses She spat (laughs) She leaned back against a fence post At her central mountain ranch One of the unkempt fence posts That gave notice that the best days of this place Had long gone by More of a memory of a ranch than an actual working operation. The last two horses were named after beers. And there was only one goat that hadn't split of its own accord. Still, Schmitzi hung on, despite all odds. The sheriff had been by in the recent weeks to try to foreclose again. But when she pulled her gun out, he hightailed it off the property. She knew her days were numbered, so when the sentinel came a-calling, she gave it her best shot. She lit a cigarette against the glowering darkness as the moisture rained down in the evening of the Santa Cruz Mountains draped in serial killers' consciences. She spoke through the side of her mouth, the smoke coming out of her nose simultaneously. He can stay hidden. I mean, come on, liven it up a little. Now back to their story, which is already in progress. That made him very hard to find. He eluded volunteers from around the Santa Cruz area, proving that people in the Santa Cruz area have little to do. <laughs> that their hours are not rich with activities. I'm, my Clydesdale is missing. Would you care to look for it in the mountains with me for several days? <laughs> You know, your wife has a restraining order out against you and you really haven't had a lot to do since your truck stopped starting three months ago. As far as I know, you've been hanging out at the snacking bowl every day and then driving over to Ben Lohman to hassle high school girls when they got out. I wonder if you'd like to help me look for, the, for Budweiser for a couple days. No, I'm not giving you Budweiser for a couple of days. Well, I'll look, but only if meals are provided why is everything like winter's bone with you Greg because once you get away from cities and people have to walk to a bathroom thank you Christopher that'll be all thanks so much <laughs> oh you brought the tickets back fucking we scored tonight man <laughs> I never thought that I would be living the life of luxury but here at Barlow Beach I see I've got a paper ticket <laughs> Oh, we'll get there. (laughs)
1: We've
0: got a lot planned. The show really has to start. Uh, The owners even trotted out Lancelot and Harry to try a buddy. Uh, A pair of searchers on horseback found Buddy hiding a big manzanita shrub Sunday. When we got him back in the pen, he was particularly frisky and playful and happy, Schmidt said. (laughs) I think he was glad to be back. (laughs) If you don't mind, because uh, I don't have a woman uh, uh, impression to do here, I'm going to do the last paragraph again as cowboy actor Dale Robertson. (laughs) (laughs) A pair of searchers on horseback finally found Buddy hiding amidst manzanita shrubs Sunday. When we got him back in the pen, he was particularly frisky and playful and happy. (laughs) I think he was glad to be back. Uh, We've talked about the National Anthem a million times on the show. We're going to talk about it tonight because it's in high, high relief this week. Uh, My beloved 49ers football team and uh, Colin Kaepernick, uh, our uh, quarterback, uh, would not stand. I'm telling you this because I know a lot of people out there know what I'm talking about. But you have to remember, we're in West Hollywood. And unless uh, this story is in turnaround, uh, no one in this room has heard about it. (laughs) So let me just explain and then we'll move on with this Colin Kaepernick is a professional quarterback For a team called the San Francisco 49ers He is black, um, that means he's Mixed race, because this is America And anyone who's even partially black is black As you know, like our president And you don't have to go all quiet, you know exactly what I'm talking about And if I just erased my whole show I'm going to kill myself I don't see it anymore, recently deleted There it is And triumph Triumph We're back. Colin Kaepernick uh, they played the national anthem at a crappy preseason fucking NFL game and Colin Kaepernick because of what's happening uh, to the black community in America at the hands of the police refused to stand he didn't stand for the anthem the rest of the team stood all of a sudden it's a shitstorm, and every fucking armchair patriot or what did Thomas Paine call them the sunshine patriot or was it the, the part time patriot and the sunshine soldier or whatever um, and he also said patriotism is the last refuge of the scoundrel which it is um, and <laughs> in any case he wouldn't stand much like Gabby Douglas didn't put her hand over her heart and Bill Paskey had a heart attack in the LA Times and that sort of a shitstorm of white indignation not just white indignation indignation all around let's because this is the year where bigotry and racism have really found new footing in America when we thought we'd stuffed it to the side when we thought we'd relegated it when we thought it was just hee haw infomercials all night long when you're on the road no it's back and it's better than ever uh The black president who went to Harvard, who's a law professor, who's calm and judicious, has rubbed so many people the wrong way um, that racism has come back pretty much bigger and better than ever um, with corporate funding and a logo, uh, trips to Mexico, and the whole enchilada. It really... It really is back, and it's big. It's big, and it's, it's, it's formidable. Um, in any case, uh, he wouldn't stand, and it started a shitstorm in the media, trust me, which has culminated today with people in the NFL talking about him, equating him amor- morally with a murderer. Now, everyone's weighed in on this, and I'm going to as well. But what was my point? Ah, that, uh, if I was elected president, and I will be very soon, um, because, and it, by the way, if I lose, something's going on. <laughs> First, I want you to check the Harambi the gorilla people.
1: <laughs>
0: then Gary Johnson, then Jill Stein, then Harold Stassen. Yeah, thank you. Then Gene McCarthy. I don't, I don't trust the whole system, and I'm going back a ways. Uh, and also, I've never thought we should be on the gold standard. <laughs> and the Illuminati and the Council 11 have been controlling professional baseball for the last 14 years (laughs) with Kurt Schilling One of the precepts of my presidency, in fact, it might have been the second or third one, was that we're not going to have the national anthem anymore. It's insipid. I've always said it. It's racist. It's stupid. It's lame. Uh, No one cares about patriotism at a sporting event. Stop with the jet flyovers and shit like that. There's plenty of people in this country at these games who have had actual jets, American jets, fly over their fucking village, and it wasn't that fun for them. Uh, And uh, Yeah, think of the kids. Uh, One, and two... It sucks. It's a terrible song. Uh, No one can sing it. No one knows the words, let's be very honest, and nor should you know the words. It has awful contractions from the second decade of the 19th century, like or (laughs) just so it'll scan because it scans poorly. The only thing that's good about the national anthem is that F. Scott Fitzgerald was related to Francis Scott Key, which is why his name was F. Scott. And that's the only positive I can find out of the whole thing. Uh, F. Scott, Francis Scott Key, F. Scott Key, as to his friends, um, was a slave owner and a an valid sort of racist in that regard. I think if you own slaves, you're pretty much saying to the world, this is how I feel. Um, there's not really like two ways about it, like we're having in this election, where evidently you can be a wild, racist, mis- uh, misogynist, uh, homophobic, uh, anti-Islamic, um, Uh, blowhard, bloviating, dangerous demagogue, and still be equated uh, with other legitimate candidates who've worked very hard and actually have uh, uh, qualifications to be president, there is an equivalency, you see, whereas before we would have gone, oh, you're a crazy psycho-racist, why don't you go sit in the corner and uh, do what you always do, which is (laughs) punish your... Any case... What was your option for the national anthem? Well, one, it was suggested in the 50s that uh, Living in the USA by Chuck Berry be the national anthem, which I heartily agree with, although Chuck Berry's personal life is best left untold. <laughs> The lyric, of course, that I appreciate the most in living in the USA is, um, I'm so glad I'm living in the USA with a hamburger sizzling on the open grill night and day. Yeah, that's our greatest quality in that song. (laughs) He doesn't say the flag waves or the oceans beat against the shore or purple mountains or any of that shite or gramber waves of grain and all that. Uh, He says the hamburger sizzling on the open grill and you're like, fuck, I could go for a burger. (laughs) Chuck Berry, all right. A coffee-colored Cadillac. Uh, yeah, he's a poet. I mean, he's channeling poetry. I don't know what's going on with Chuck Berry personally, but poetry like Van Morrison is channeled through him. I don't think you really want to eat. Well, now, of course, he's old. He's harmless, but less harmless, more harmless. What's the word? What was your idea, Greg? That we, before the game begins, choose to read the Franklin song by acclamation, and that is the national anthem. Because there's no greater songstress in the history of the country, and she embodies everything that Ma Rainey and Ethel Waters and every uh, singer that you can think of, Odetta, to the beginning of uh, the nation, uh, uh, could stand for and be. Uh, And uh, so I've chosen for us tonight to eliminate the middleman, and I ask you to please remain sitting for our national anthem. (laughs) I'll just spin that one. Well, there's a long intro on it. Uh, And this is a... Wha- this is to show the stupidity of anthems. Because if I said this was the anthem and we all had to stand for it, people were like, okay. <laughs> you may remember the producer, Nardo Michael Walden. That's why it has this tight 80s sound. Turn that shit up we're really loud here. Right? There's a lot of scouting in the beginning. I <laughs> Would that be the best anthem? Who wouldn't like that? Today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Whether you need a landing page, a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, it's all included with your Squarespace website. It's easy. Creating your website with Squarespace is a simple, intuitive process. You can add and arrange your content and features with the click of a mouse. Free custom domain. Squarespace makes adding a domain to your site simple. If you sign up for a year, you'll receive a custom domain for free for a year. Beautiful templates. Design a best-in-class online store with Squarespace's award-winning templates, customizable settings, and more, all without a single plugin. Seamless commerce tools from nationally recognized brands to your favorite local shops. Squarespace is trusted by hundreds of thousands of savvy shop owners around the world, including all the tools you need to track inventory, process orders, and send custom emails in one intuitive interface. Squarespace commerce allows you to understand every aspect of your business. Customer support. Squarespace offers 24-7 customer support. Every member of the customer care team is an experienced Squarespace user working in a Squarespace office. No matter how technical your problem or trivial seeming your question, one of their team is always online to assist you. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code PROOPS to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, set your website apart. That's P-R O-O-P-S I thank you and the smartest man in the world podcast thank you Uh, this is uh, Stan Breed on ESPN Uh, his father was in the army and um, his father was discriminated against in World War II his mother was valedictorian and uh, couldn't go to college in Louisiana because they were segregated and this is what he said on ESPN they didn't want to hear about her grades you can't go because you're black there's still discriminatory problems in housing hiring the justice system there's real problems people aren't making this up and they're trying to find ways to speak out about it you're not always going to agree with the method meaning Colin Kaepernick sitting but let's pay as much attention to the substance as we do to the symbol. Uh, That was a very measured response. People were saying he was a traitor and um, where does he get off Um, because he's rich? Uh, Let me put this to you. When you're poor and you complain about how there's an inequity between the rich and the poor you're given little notice. When you're rich and a celebrity, people finally listen to the things you say. So at that point, you're no longer allowed to say the same things you were saying when you were poor, which he's from. Uh, he's not rich. Uh, now he is. Um, you're not allowed to say those things because now you're rich and you're in the system and you should be weepingly grateful that America smiled on you and shit like that. Um an overwhelming majority of the players in the NFL are black. Um, an overwhelming majority of the owners, meaning all of them, are white. Uh, an overwhelming majority of the coaches and, and the general staff in the uh, NFL is white. So the idea that white people are willing to have uh, black men concuss themselves and are willing to look the other way on, let's be honest, um, Rape, murder, sexual assault, suicide, uh, all the things that go on in the NFL that we know about that have happened so frequently in the last few years, but when a black man won't stand up, now we've got an issue with the NFL, right? And that's the fucking hypocrisy of this, and that's what really leaves a giant, bitter fucking taste in my mouth. And why aren't um, athletes allowed to be American citizens, too? for goodness sakes I'm an alcoholic comedian and I give my opinion and I don't get fucking shut down for it Um, uh, John Carlos and Tommy Smith, Tommy Smith talked about it of course this week, uh, uh, gave the Black Power salute in 1968, Muhammad Ali I think you'll find was an everlasting symbol uh, uh, of Black Pride and Black Power in the sports community, Um, Dr. Harry Edwards of course, uh, 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 Arthur Ashe um, Wyoming, I mean I don't really have to go on and on and on and explain to you, Um, Venus and Serena Williams you know, it's everyone has had something to say and they're not wrong just because they're rich you're allowed to still say something but Greg what about your hatred of rich people and your general condemnation of everything they have to say Um, (laughs) rich privileged elite people are part of the dominant paradigm and power system the athletes that I was talking about to a person uh, except maybe Arthur I don't know what Arthur Ashe's childhood was like I presume not one of luxury uh, Muhammad Ali certainly did not grow up in luxury and uh, they were all helped along by various people including their families and uh, they have every right to talk about the inequities in America in fact if you're going to inject fucking patriotism into the game and play the National Anthem, then don't the players... You may remember the NBA players and the WNBA players when the season was on, wearing Black Lives Matter t-shirts on the, uh, on the court and taking a great deal of shit for that, too. Like, I don't see why they're spoiling my fucking corporate good-time entertainment television show by injecting reality into it and shit. Um, because they're humans and they live in the world. I get real tired of, like, um, oh, all athletes are rapists or all comedians are drug addicts. Cheers. And... <laughs> people in show business, whether it's sports or show business, are like everyone else except more so because we're completely self-interested but the point is this Um, everyone in the real world does drugs and everyone in the real world is an alcoholic and everyone in the real world beats up people and shit too it's just that they're famous-er and that's why they get uh, do they have a a duty to be a role model? perhaps, what everyone has a duty to be is a better person Um, not that we're going to do it but there you are Uh, Moving on Uh, Jamil Smith Who writes brilliantly And somehow is at MTV In this fractured media era Uh, Donald Trump suggested that Colin Kaepernick should leave America I followed it and I think personally not a good thing Trump said on the Dory Monson show when asked about Kaepernick's decision I think it's a terrible thing and you know maybe he should find a country that works better for him it was odd to hear Trump say Kaepernick can't have it better than he does in the US seeing as how he spent the last few weeks telling us how bad African Americans have it what with all the joblessness and poverty in our bloody urban hellscapes this isn't to say his dismissive response was surprising, though. It was the kind of prideful disdain we tend to hear anytime someone from a marginalized community like Kaepernick makes note of the fact that he or she is unhappy with bigotry. Go find somewhere else to live in, they're told. See how you like it in Iran or Iraq or Syria. This is jingoism at its shallowest, and it isn't a counterargument so much as an insult. Too often, those unwilling to even try to understand protests like Kaepernick use blind patriotism as a blunt instrument to smack anyone who doubts our nation's inherent perfection. Uh, sports luminaries Drew Brees, Jerry Rice, Jim Harbaugh, uh, they all sat down on him. It was bad. Uh, Kaepernick's original intent has been subsumed thanks to the ridiculous responses it's uh, inspired. This is what Kaepernick said. I'm not going to stand up to show pride in a flag for a country that oppresses black people and people of color. When I read these remarks, I thought less of other activist athletes, like Muhammad Ali and Jim Brown, than I did of James... That I thought less, not of... I, I don't mean I thought less of. I thought of other, he's th- saying here, like Muhammad Ali and Jim Brown. And Jim Brown supported Kevonix's protest, as would Ali, I'm certain. Uh, James Baldwin. James Baldwin said... Um, I love America more than any other country in the world. And exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually. And this is what Jamil Smith says. That quote is something of a mantra for me and many others who make it their work to contend with issues of equality. It's also the most, pat- most patriotic sentence I've ever read. Um, I-, I couldn't agree more. I remember when I was doing a dating show uh, and when 9-11 happened. Yeah, go back to my own shallow fucking life. <laughs> And there was an Osama Bin Laden joke uh, in this show. And uh, it was a Bush joke, excuse me. There was a George Bush joke about how stupid George Bush was. And we came back after 9-11 and it had been changed in the script to an Osama Bin Laden joke. And I remonstrated with the staff and said, I don't feel that they are equivalent. And uh, one of the staff said to me, this is no time to make fun of the president. And my response was, this is a dating show. (laughs) (laughs) no one is watching us for keen political insight a dumb joke's a dumb joke you know what I mean like wow Uh, Baldwin's contention embodied in Keppernick's action is in direct opposition to the lazy notion of American exceptionalism we see promoted by politicians and citizens alike constantly proclaiming the United States is the greatest nation on earth trademark isn't just overly prideful. It gives out and out to those unwilling to contend with our deep divides and inequities. Um, We're moving on. Uh, And this is why uh, that because I was asked to explain this by someone who tweeted me, I'm going to. Uh, The National Anthem is a celebration of slavery. It's an article by John Schwartz. I'm going to skip down to the salient part here. Uh, The Star Spangled Banner is not just a musical atrocity. It's an intellectual and moral one, too. This is the... I didn't write that, but I wish I had. I wish I had. And it it is, in fact, the Iron Maiden of anthems, because it pins you inside and your eyeballs bleed by the end of it. Or the land of the free. Now, I go to a lot of baseball games, so at the end, we always say, and the home of the Braves. And then, as everyone knows, the last two words of the anthem are play ball. Because that's what the umpire says. <laughs> as soon as the anthem is over, the umpire turns to the players and goes, play ball, and wipes the plate off. There you are. Uh, so we always say, how uh, to Let's try joy, spangled banner yet brave, o'er the land of the free and the home of the braves. Play ball. Um... This is so. No refuge could save the hireling and slave. (laughs) from the terror flight of the gloom of the grave and the star-spangled banner in triumph doth wave or the land of the free and the home of the brave um, it was the battle of Fort McHenry blah 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 um, by the time of the battle of Fort McHenry the British had counterattacked and overrun D.C. Uh, you may remember the president rode away on his horse by himself from the White House while the British burned the White House to the ground and yet we're still friends with them <laughs> talk about moral lapses <laughs> One of the key tactics behind the British military success was its active recruitment of American slaves. This is from Harper's. The orders given to the Royal Navy's Admiral George, fantastically, Coburn, spelled Cockburn. <laughs> Let the landings you make be more for the protection of the desertion of the black population than with a view to any other advantage. The great point to be attained is the cordial support of the black population. With them properly armed and backed with 20,000 British troops, Mr. Madison will be hurled from his throne. Yes, that's what uh, Sir George Coburn said in a missive to his uh, uh, troops. Uh, So you understand the situation here. This is a tactical military situation during the War of 1812. The British had invaded us, in case you don't know what the War of 1812 was. What was going on in Europe? Napoleon was conquering all of Europe. By 1814, he'd uh, gone over Spain, uh, uh, obviously uh, France, a good deal of Belgium. Uh, The British were scared to pieces. He'd already been knocked back from Moscow, um, and they were getting ready for the final reckoning against him. And at the same time, the British were so fucking wealthy from raping the world through the whole 18th century that they had enough money to wage a war in the new world that they had only broken off from what, in 1782, 83 when the last year of the revolution was? They came back for fucking seconds thinking they could do it again. No one in the whole room. Everyone, really? This really happened? Yeah it's the revolution then the war of 1812 then the Mexican American war then the civil War. I'm leaving out a bunch of wars I'm just I'm giving you the highlights here why is it important James Madison rode away from the White House while the British burned it to the fucking ground uh huh and you know who James Madison is right Uh, he's not on any dollar bills that I can think of but um, he, he should have been he had a great haircut and he was very good looking no musical I'm, although I'm going to write a sin coin about Madison when the show's over. <laughs> Jamie Madd. Uh, he was one of uh, George's boys and, uh, uh, and like that. But in any case, uh, uh, Jamie Madd, uh, like Aaron Burr and uh, Hammy, uh, was quite young when the revolution started. They were in their early 20s, you see, whereas George Washington and Benjamin Franklin, a little bit older, and, and Jefferson, Franklin quite old, but uh, the, the others were middle-aged, uh, Adams, whatnot. Um, whole families found their way to the ships of the British who accepted everyone and pledged no one would be given back to their owners. Adult men were trained to create a regiment called the Colonial Marines who participated in many of the most important battles, including the August 1814 raid on Washington. Do you see the irony here? black slaves who were given their freedom by the British in invading army um, helped burn the White House down in 1814. The White House that they built uh, not if you're Bill O'Reilly the White House then was built (laughs) was a prefab thing and and we we put it up in a couple days a couple guys had a beer, There's a black guy there. (laughs) Then on the night of September 13th 1814, oh say toss that star spangling the British bombarded Fort McHenry Key seeing the fort's flag the next morning Was inspired to write the lyrics and blah, 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 blah. Uh, So when Key penned No refuge could be saved The hireling slave from the terror of flight Of the gloom of the grave He was taking great satisfaction In the death of the slaves who freed themselves His perspective may have been affected By the fact that he owned several slaves With that again think about the next two lines uh, uh, and the Star-Spangled Banner and triumph doth the way over the land of the free and the home of the brave. The reality is there were human beings fighting for freedom in that incredible bravery in the War of 1812. It glorifies America's triumph over them and that completely reality, uh, completely upside down, transformed their killers into courageous freedom fighters. Um, this part you'll find most salient. When they signed the treaty in 1814, which by the way, is Ghent, is it? I believe it's the Treaty of Ghent. The U.S. government demanded the return of American property That meant human beings, Um, by which that point numbered 6,000 people. The British refused. Most of the 6,000 eventually settled in Canada, some going to Trinidad. And if you go to Trinidad, you'll find their descendants are called Americans. Everybody's like, hmm, interesting. (laughs) Francis Scott Key was a district attorney for Washington, D.C., as described in a book called Snowstorm in August by former Washington Post reporter Jeff Morley. The police were notorious thieves, frequently stealing free blacks' possessions with impunity. One night, one of the constables tried to attack a woman who escaped and ran away until she fell off the Potomac Bridge and drowned. There is neither mercy nor justice for colored people in this district, an abolitionist paper wrote. This is the 1833. No fuss or stir was made about it. She was got out of the river and buried, and there the matter ended. Key was furious and indicted the newspaper for intending to injure, oppress, aggrieve, and vilify the good name, fed it, and credit, reputation of the magistrates and constables of Washington County. So This whole standing for the anthem thing <laughs> Maybe it's all ancient meaningless history Or maybe it's not And he writes here Kaepernick is right And we really need a new national anthem I've said that so many times um, I wanted to read you something We're not quite getting to it yet Oh golly we've got so much to do But so little time uh, You'll recognize this in a minute It's Arthur O'Shaughnessy A poem called Ode But no one calls it that We are the music makers And we are the dreamers of dreams Wandering by lone sea breakers And sitting by desolate streams World losers and world forsakers On whom the pale moon gleams Yet we are the movers and shakers Of the world forever, it seems There's several other verses Um, It's the first time Movers and shakers is used I would have thought it was Shakespeare, right? Uh, About Trump, and we're moving right along. The times of Trump continue. He went to Mexico today. He met with Peña Nieto. And um, I've mispronounced that name horribly. It's Peña Nieto. But uh, uh, it was a complete photo op, bizarre, um, grandstanding, terrible event. As Dana Gould said to me when I was on his podcast a couple of weeks ago, the Dana Gould podcast, um, with Trump, it's Watergate every day. (laughs) The reason why it seems like it's such a frantic pace and that we're trying to keep up with every affront is that everything is at that level every day. Why? Because he's got nothing to go on and nothing to do. He does not have a position. He does not have policy. He's not a serious candidate. What this is about is forming a white supremacist uh, television or, or giant audiovisual network at the end of this, the day after the election. Um, that's what this is about. In case you're thinking it's about something else, this is what it's about. Otherwise... Uh, or never, never mind otherwise. Therefore, that is why he hired um, Roger Ailes, who is uh, an unofficial consultant to this campaign. Why um, uh, uh, Paul Manafort was involved at all. And why uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Bannon, who is the head of Breitbart News, which is a scurrilous, um, yellow rag, white supremacist, um, uh, terrible meme supporting. Um Let me put it this way. Once upon a time, if you were a Republican, you were allowed to believe things like the, the world was round. Now, after the eight years of Obama, if you don't believe that Obama was a Muslim from Kenya and you don't believe that Hillary Clinton killed Vince Foster, you're no longer allowed to be a Republican. That's what's happened to the party. It was started by Rush Limbaugh and all the blowheads in the in the uh, you know in the long ago, twenty years ago, when they had Clinton the first as a punching bag. Um, and that's what's gone on. This whole narrative that uh, Hillary Clinton's untrustworthy and unpopular, whatever um, she might be with you, I, I get it. Um, if she's leading in all the polls and has a nineteen point lead in Washington and a zillion, jillion people voted for her and everyone feels like she's going to win by a landslide, I'm not certain where the unpopularity is coming from. Uh, it seems to be a bit of a double. Speak Orwellian mainstream media narrative that they keep promoting in order to keep us interested in the election. What Trump did was save cable news, and therefore, what Trump did was save cable news and empower white supremacist trolls to take over Twitter and Facebook, and that's what they've done. Uh, you can't go on Twitter anymore without finding a white supremacist meme. Uh, there And it'll often be like Hillary is a, 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 a piece of shit because or whatever, or, or something that serves their purposes. And um, uh, that's what's happening right now. They're in a minority and therefore I don't believe they're going to win in any way. However, uh, uh, Trump went to Mexico for reals and uh, the disastrous uh, uh, meeting and showing. You can watch it on telly uh, or you can watch it on the interweb that he went through today. A couple of high points. Um, Oh, is the show over? Am I getting the light? Do you have something coming in after? No, 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 you're fine. Oh, all right, thanks. I just saw a flashlight in the back of the room, and I was like, I haven't gotten the light here ever. I've, I've, never, received a, uh, I've never received a charitable note, and I've never gotten the light. So that's, so that's two weird things. Uh, that uh, uh, The president of Mexico and him supposedly discussed that Mexico was going to pay for the wall. Trump said that they didn't, and of course the president of Mexico said, we did, and I said, I'm not paying for it. <laughs> Rudy Giuliani wore a hat that said, "Not at that rally, but at another one." Make Mexico great again, also. Uh, Which might? Would you? Would you, uh, Moran? If you're going to the, what's it? Would you? I'll oh, yeah. uh, 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 call. Um, <laughs> make Mexico great again, also. Just chew on that one like a Gary Busey quote. <laughs> Por favor. I mean, wow. Wow. Um, Trump's uh, giant policy speech that he gave tonight, Jennifer and I watched, uh, and uh, I'm still agitated. There's no amount of Xanax and wine that can take you his bellicose uh, delivery, uh, the, the utter fact-free uh bloviating is just a shocking amalgam of uh terrible uh grammatical uh like I- inconceivable step st- the the, the- <laughs> There's, there's no logic, there's no flow, there's no conversance, there's no uh, um, intellect informing any of it. It's a, a series of bizarre, poorly formulated, childlike, jingoistic catchphrases punctuated with yelling and then people chanting. Someone yelled, uh, string her up when he mentioned Hillary tonight, and it was clearly audible on the air that's where we're coming from in case you're wondering where we're coming from in case you're like Greg people are entitled to their opinion which they absolutely are and I've said to my Trumpies a million times come on over now that the bridge is on this side of the border why don't you join us want to walk the water Um, as George Duke said big funk in the dump baby if you should ever see a skunk shake his rump come over here and get your wick licked a bit uh, as they say right uh, I invite the Trumpies to come over. But what I'm saying is, if you're thinking it's about something else besides misogyny and racism, it's not. When the candidate opposing you is a woman, you don't yell, string her up. She, Hillary Clinton, whatever her crimes are in your eyes, thank you so much, Ryan, doesn't need to be hung. Nor would she suggest that uh, Trump be hung in any way. Um, tarred and feathered, perhaps, on a weekend. <laughs> that was my suggestion the main premise of his whole thrust is that somehow illegal immigrants have destroyed America this is a fact Jennifer gave me today she's provided most of the research of course for all of this border apprehensions which are the best measure of unauthorized crossings 1986 1.7 million 2016 330,000 historic low that, that's happening he also said they're going to beef up the border um, the border's had billions of poured into it in the last few years Um, also Obama has deported more people than any president in recent memory and sold more arms than any president in recent memory so remember what we're talking about when we're talking about politicians here before the moral high ground gets too shaky and you fall like a goat trying to butt open a door for Clydesdale the media has behaved shamefully in my opinion almost in every regard um, I watch MSNBC like everyone else and CNN and uh, Fox News I watch I watch everybody uh, but uh, uh, CNN uh, uh, there's a few reporters that she'll go nameless Andrea Mitchell that have <laughs> an enormous axe to grind against uh, our Hillcat and and um, Um, Not only that, um, today on um, MSNBC, while I was watching, they had on a Latina woman uh, who was part of a Latina outreach program speaking to Chris Hayes. And while she was speaking to Chris Hayes, in the corner of the screen, they put up a small TV view of Trump's motorcade heading to his speech. Now, I don't need to see him in his car on the way there. That's not news to me. That's trying to keep you hooked on so you'll carry on watching. Jennifer said, why did they do it? Um, She knew why. And we all know why. There is no prime directive for um, coverage of this campaign from any of the media outlets that you're watching or listening uh, to. Um, they have one prime directive, profit and growth. Um, the, uh, the benefit of the United States people, uh, the clarification of the news, the weighing of facts, um, the assaying and uh, dissemination of information in a clear and coherent way, um, the taking of moral sides against things that are obviously awful, like misogyny, homophobia, bigotry and racism um, are not in play. What's in play is um, TV and the media has been saved by this fucking election because it's a notorious woman versus an infamous fucking evil demon. And that is what they're playing. And they're pretending like it's a race because they want to stay, want you to stay till November on this one. And then afterward for uh, when the can- uh, Congress, I almost called them the Kangaroos, They are. They're, they're a kangaroo court of Congress. <laughs> Charles Pierce, uh, an Esquire, has been a voice of sanity through this whole election. If you haven't read him, read him. If you haven't seen him, see him. This is what I want to get at, and I'll stop making my point about the media. One of our two major political parties has nominated a megalomaniacal know-nothing for the highest office in the land. He is demonstrably racist, demonstrably unfit for the office, and very nearly demonstrably cuckoo bananas. That is the only story anybody should be covering, and there is no, in capitals, other side to it. Both sides, thank you. As Donald Trump would say, thank you. Both sides do not nominate Donald Trump's elite American political journalism is either unwilling or unable to accept the obvious truth of this. Let me just go back to the other part here. Demonstrably cuckoo bananas, that is the only story anybody should be covering and there's no other side to it. Um, that's where the media is falling down right now. When you read these polls uh, or, or you see these news reports, sift them through the logic of your mind. Um, consider the things you're hearing. Even if you dislike Hillary intensely, and I know there are people within the sound of my voice who do, Under- Understand me, my darlings, when I tell you that there is no moral equivalency, false or otherwise, between her and Donald Trump. She is a perfectly qualified, perfectly capable human being who would be an outstanding president in any era. Um, He, on the other hand. The Supreme Court will not allow North Carolina in the coming election to use strict voter laws that a lower court found was enacted with almost surgical precision to blunt the influence of African-American voters. The terrible restrictive uh, voter uh, ID laws that they wanted to enact in North Carolina have been struck down by the Supreme Court today. How so? And I mean today, like five hours ago. The court said it would not stay a ruling of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit that found the law unconstitutional. So you understand the gyrations here. Let's not go into it because it's too fucking convoluted. But suffice to say, they didn't support it being a law. Uh, They would not stay a ruling of the Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit that found the law unconstitutional. So they would not give the stay. The stay would have carried on. The stay reversed the Fourth Circuit's ruling that it was unconstitutional. Uh, The court was not ruling on the merits of the law, but instead on an emergency request filed by Governor Pat McCrory to use the law as the state had in previous elections. Four justices... And these are the ones who would have kept the law going. Our Chief Justice John G. Roberts, Justice Anthony Kennedy, Clarence Thomas, and Samuel Alito would have granted North Carolina's request according to the court's orders. The other ones, which are uh, Breyer, uh, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg are the ones who carried the day on this because Antonine Scalia is in the big golf course in the sky. We won this one today. And North Carolina the black students of North Carolina the students in general the old people of North Carolina will be allowed to vote without having to show fucking voting then. Uh, Anthony Weiner ever so briefly for one paragraph <laughs> this was written by Rebecca Traster at The Cut uh, she talks about Andrew Mitchell of course and all this here's the thing there's no reason for there to be political fallout from this there's an pardon me an increased likelihood of TMZ coverage and fantastic tabloid headline puns Nothing in the silly, sad story has any bearing on the presidential campaign. The fact that we're talking about it like it does is a result of the the hungry media's attempt to maintain the fantasy there's any equivalence between Hillary Clinton, a competent candidate, by the way, I didn't write this, Rebecca Trister at the cut, uh, whose politics you can love or hate, and Donald Trump, a man best summed up by some of his Scottish critics as a weapons-grade plum. Donald Trump, who wants to be president, recently hired the purveyor of a white ethno-nationalism who's been accused by his wife of assault and who is alleged to have fired a woman suffering from MS while she was on maternity leave. And, as you know, has committed voter fraud and has a house in Florida that he does not live in and is registered in the state of Florida. The very voter fraud that they're warning us about all the time. Mr. Bannon has committed that. Hillary Clinton, who wants to be president, has employed since the 90s a woman who in 2010 married a guy who turned out to be really skeezy. <laughs> Uh, hundreds of most powerful men in this country, including a number of presidents, have been just as skeezy as Anthony Weiner. Roger Ailes built a cable news network that helped prop up several Republican presidential administrations, all while using his network's money to help him cover up his record of serial sexual harassment. He just got paid $40 million to walk away from his job and sign on as an advisor to Trump's campaign. Uh, to everyone desperate to mount some kind of cogent comparison between Donald Trump's hate fuel campaign and the, and the bad taste in men evident on his opponent's team, I want to say what Huma finally said to Anthony Weiner get the fuck out of here. <laughs> ever so briefly Stanford News this is from the Stanford News website that I read off of today in an effort to reduce the availability and accessibility of hard alcohol Stanford University has updated its student alcohol policy to prohibit high volume distilled liquor containers for all undergraduate blah 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 we know what this is about the Brock Turner decision was a complete shock to them they had nothing in place to protect women as do most universities in this country banning alcohol is the stupidest most patronizing idea in the history of mankind why don't we instead focus on that men feel it is their prerogative to sexually violate women when women are inebriated. And that's where the problem is. Women getting inebriated is not the problem. Hard alcohol is not the problem. Hard alcohol is necessary for college to carry on. I went to college. And I wasn't particularly drinking in college. That's something I've come by lately. (laughs) I was, however, wildly smoky in college, and I would not deny anyone uh, the right to do this. What has to be taught and what has to be prohibited is men's impulse to commit violence against women, because that's what this is. The idea that alcohol is some sort of magic, uh, uh, you know, panacea, that, uh, oh, because someone's drunk, they were asking for it, or because they had brown hair, they were asking for it, or because they were wearing shoes, they were asking for it. As the movie, what is the movie with Ben Gazzara and... um, Jimmy Stewart. Is that Anatomy of a Murder? What's the name of that one? With Jimmy? Yeah. yeah. And Michael, anyone loose? Yeah. Uh, 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 Lee Remix raped in the movie, and uh, the guy goes, Well, she was dancing with no shoes on. And the whole jury's like, Mm hmm. And that's what this is. Um, Stanford University is way too uh, smart and dignified to pull this bullshit. You gotta be fucking kidding me. How about. Um, making women's plea how about believing women let's just start there Fox News is denying the sexual harassment allegations of former co-host Andrea Tantaros and has asked that her complaints against the network go to arbitration. She filed a suit, and this is how she described what was going on in the Roger Ailes-run Fox News. Sex-fueled, Playboy Mansion-like cult steeped in intimidation, indecency, and misogyny. Her program's been off the air since April 25th. Uh, Gretchen Carlson was the first one to come forward There are dozens of women Uh, Am I overestimating that? Let's say lots of women um, Coming up against Roger Ailes Um, Donald Trump hired him He's working for the Donald Trump campaign Um, Cosmopolitan has an article called Women Make History, the 2016 Election Congress Yes, I know it's Cosmopolitan There were also on the same page Tips for better orgasms (laughs) Yeah Yeah it it's Cosmopolitan so you know it's going to be there me and my boyfriend were getting frisky when someone pulled back the curtain at our wedding you know it's always that how to drive your man wild I always read Cosmopolitan in every waiting room and Jennifer will come out and be like what are you doing and I'm like this is lurid licentious and vile What did Tom Lair say? Uh, uh, Lurid, uh, medieval tortures used by debauchers, lurid, licentious, and vile, make me smile. (laughs) As the judge remarked the day that he acquitted my Aunt Hortense, to be smutted must be uh, utterly without redeeming social importance. More! The graphic pictures I adore! and even more if it's hardcore when correctly viewed anything is lewd I could tell you things about Peter Pan 19 women who will make history if elected to Congress this year Um, this is by Prachi Gupta I was going to read all of them but we're running out of time here actually we can go as long as we want I don't think anyone's coming in I'll give you a couple highlights. Um, One of them is already off the uh, uh, list this year because she lost to John McCain in the primary. But there you are. Nineteen women who will make history if elected to Congress this year. Um, Hillary Clinton has become the first female presidential candidate of a major political party. And by the way, if you're mad about that, be sure to shit on it. (laughs) be sure to make sure all young girls know and all older women know that when they're really excited about something happening for women like a woman getting um, nominated for president make sure you uh, disapprove of that loudly and endlessly so that you can really fuck up a whole people's fucking enjoyment of the most historic moment in the history of presidential politics make sure that you're on the wrong side of it when a club that has been exclusively men for over 200 years is finally broached by a woman make sure that you're like well I want her make sure you're that voice make sure you're the icky bruised blackened banana in the fruit bowl okay don't be the ripe luminescent moisture laden peach that beckons us make sure you're a hideous horrible fucking desiccated avocado that no one wants to touch when well, get what I wanted trans-pacific partnership <laughs> when little girls who are 10 years old are smiling and they say to their mother well we've had a black man and a woman as president and I could be president too make sure that you shit on that with a giant NFL owner turd in the shape of a small cock okay Boys Gents Fellas My buddies My gender Some of the brothers Need some re-indoctrinating Don't be proud Oh no Don't fucking be proud Be angry about it Be angry Never fucking Hillary Crooked Hillary Don't trust Hillary That fucking bitch She let She fucking sent an email man <laughs> She's fucking dead. Shut up in the ass. <laughs> By the way, the country's a hellhole. You can't walk down the street without being shot. Shot. I love that he's so worried about everyone being shot, Donald Trump, and at the same time mentions the Second Amendment in every speech if you were so worried about people being shot you might want to, I don't know, kind of contain the second amendment a little bit there Uh, here we go Uh, based on uh, uh, fairvote.org nonpartisan representation Uh, Lisa Blunt from Rochester, Delaware if elected she'll be the first woman and the first African American to represent Delaware in Congress, Katie McGinney Pennsylvania, if elected she'll be the first woman to represent Pennsylvania, can you believe that? Uh, Pramilia Jalapal House of Representatives, D.C. If elected, she'll be the first Indian-American woman in Congress, in Congress, ever. Yeah. yeah. Angie, Angie Craig, woo. House of Representatives, Minnesota. She'll be the first openly gay person to represent Minnesota in Congress. Um, Denise Juneau, House of Representatives, Montana. If elected, she'll be the first Native-American woman in Congress and the first openly gay person to represent Montana in Congress. Suzanne Shkreli, yeah, uh, they'll be the first Albanian-American woman. She's in Michigan. Um, Kamala Harris, our own Kamala Harris, the Attorney General. Yeah. She'll be the second black woman in Congress. Her father was Indian, uh, and a Jamaican-Stanford uh, professor was her mother. She'll be, the, uh, she went to Hastings, of course, and Howard, um, she lives, This one's good Hey guys You know what Remember uh, What was it here In 2010 She became the first female First black And first Asian American Attorney General Loretta Sanchez Who's also running for Senate She'll be the first Latina In the Senate Catherine Cortez Masto If elected She'll be the first woman To represent Nevada In the Senate First woman ever To represent Nevada And could be the first Latina In the Senate Latika Mary Thomas From Florida She'll be a congressperson She'll be the first Indian American woman In Congress Denise Gitchum House of Representatives California The first Republican Chinese American woman in Congress. She's a Republican. Oh, yeah, we're covering the bases here. Sue Googe, House of Representatives, North Carolina, first Asian American woman to represent North Carolina. Misty Snow, we've talked about the Misties, first openly transgender person in Congress and would be the youngest U.S. Senator in American history. She's 30. Misty Plowright, the first openly transgender person in Congress. Misty Plowright uh, is uh, in Colorado. Uh, Self described computer geek, military veteran, and poly- polyamorous transgender woman raised by a single mother and relied on public assistance. Susan Narvaez, House of Representative Texas, first Latina woman to represent Texas in Congress if she's elected. Tui Loy. Uh, Tui Lo, excuse me, House of Representatives Florida, the first Asian American woman to represent Florida in Congress. Tammy Duckworth, that hero uh, at the U.S. Senate in Illinois, if elected the first Thai American, Tammy Duckworth has already made history becoming the first female veteran and the first Asian American woman from Illinois represented at the House of Representatives representative in 2014. An Iraq War veteran whose legs were amputated after her helicopter was shot down in 2004, Duckworth has been leading the offensive against Donald Trump for joking about how easy it is to get a Purple Heart. After her recovery, she worked for the Department of Veteran Affairs and was appointed to Assistant Secretary by President Barack Obama in 2009. You may remember, she was the one who posed with her sacred, uh, her Purple Hearts after Trump said, when the guy gave him the Purple Heart, he went, hey, this is easier than the regular way. (laughs) (laughs) And Kirkpatrick, uh, Senate Arizona. She'd be the first woman from the Senate in Arizona. Uh... Let's see here. Moving right along. Um, By the way, 20% of the women are in the Senate. Uh, um, Let's see. This is from Women's News, which is a website. The country's 10th most expensive Senate rate includes two female Democrats, da-da-da-da, Kamal Harris and Loretta Sanchez. Here we are. 17 women all running for two major parties are expected to break spending records. There are 14 female Democrats and six female Republicans in the Senate, just 20% of the total 100 seats. So I don't want to hear that you don't want this woman or that woman in particular because it's not you're not ready for them. When the representation is that weak and that underfed and that underrepresented, there's nothing we can do but try to strive for equality at all times. 46 women have ever served in the Senate. Ever. 29 Democrats, 17 Republicans. That's all that have ever served in the Senate. uh, 46 women, excuse me. Um, When women only make up 20% of the Senate you guys uh, North Dakota oil. Pi- I'm going to do this one next week. I know I said I was going to do it this week, but we don't have time. We have a correspondent out at the uh, North Dakota pipeline. Uh, you know, what's going on out there. Uh, a young lady named Warren has written me this week and has been delivering supplies to them. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about it a lot more next week because um, she's written me missives from the front lines there. And, um, Uh, The Lakota Sioux and other tribes are fighting a a deep fight against the U.S. government to uh, uh, stop that pipeline that's going through up there. Um, I'm going to go back to uh, another one here. We're going to skip down because we're making it to the—I There's. have to do this one. Stop it. What did you do? Stop it. Why is it recently deleted? I didn't delete it. Greg, will you learn to operate your phone before the next episode? (laughs) We're back to the Albanian woman in Congress. I'm joking, of course. Um, I want to talk ever so briefly about uh, Gene Wilder, who's swirling in the heavens this week. Uh, Gene Wilder. Yes, we're going to come back for Juan Gabriel and Warren Hinkle. I haven't forgotten about them. And uh, Warren Hinkle is going to get a giant, uh, giant, giant. Uh, eulogy in any case uh, I wanted to talk about Gene Wilder uh, for a little bit because he's so worth it not only did I get the feeling that he's something that very few movie stars are now which is um beloved um there is something special about Gene Wilder uh from the very beginning and uh I think anyone he hasn't made a picture in 20 years he's been a novelist for the last 20 years and written several uh four in fact uh books and uh Uh, Has been married to a woman that he met on the set of Hear No Evil, See No Evil, the Richard Pryor movie. Uh, So he's been married to her for quite a long time. Supposedly, he was listening to Somewhere Over the Rainbow uh, upon the moment that he entered the heavens, which I think is fantastically Gene Wilder in a million different ways. It wasn't just his um, uh, unbelievable comedic ability and his um, sort of fantastically... Uh, great leading man quality because he was a leading man as well as being a a team player and a a supporter of everyone's comic genius. It's uh, his rare vulnerability mixed with the manic hysteria that he brought to every role because the manic hysteria is what we all remember because it's so deliciously over the top and fantastic. But His rare vulnerability is what makes him a great movie star and what made him, I think, beloved uh, of all of us, certainly me. Um, I had an opportunity to meet him and uh, uh, it was 20 years ago. I was doing... uh, uh, How did you get to meet him, Greg? Thank you for asking. (laughs) I was offered a corporate gig for Cathay Pacific Airlines to do... Uh, one of those things they show you before you land, especially in those days when there was, wasn't a bunch of channels, it was just one big movie. Before you landed, they would go like, what to do in London? And it was me walking around London telling you what you should do. And in this documentary, or this little, like 10-minute thing, I got to talk to Mater Joffrey, the fabulous Indian cook and husband of uh, Saeed Joffrey. I got to talk to Terrence Conrad, uh, Conrad at the Bluebird Cafe. Terrence Conrad, who introduced basically like aesthetics to England in the 60s and like olive oil and the idea of good food and, the, and uh, a shop that you could go to that had beautiful furniture that you could buy for your own apartment and all that like the Conrad uh, the Conrad empire of all of his you know relatives and him and uh, uh, um, Jennifer what, what was her name the one who's Mary Mary Helvin, who's fantastically Jerry Hall's best friend and is a Hawaiian and was living in London. I got to interview her and Gene Wilder, who was doing Laughter on the 23rd Floor, the play by Neil Simon uh, on the West End. So there was a shot of me walking down Shaftesbury Avenue going, when you're in London, you should go see Gene Wilder in Neil Simon's Laughter on the 23rd Floor. It's an hilarious, oh yeah, in a gray suit. <laughs> and uh, so I got to go backstage and meet him right so I'm backstage with him and we're sitting closer than you, I am to you he was there I was here in his dressing room so it was fantastic and so to set the scene um, Young Frankenstein had been on telly two or three nights before and BBC 2 in those days at like 11.30, 12 at night would show a movie a really groovy classic movie and, but I mean late like you had you know it was one of those ones that you're like fuck do I stay up and then of course yes it's Young Frankenstein <laughs> So it was 11.30 at night, and BBC Two was showing Young Frankenstein, so I stayed up and watched it. Jennifer and I went and saw the play, because they gave me tickets to it, because I was doing the thing for Cathay Pacific. So I get in there with him, and he's really nice, absolutely gorgeous. Giant, blue, limpid eyes that you could fall into emotionally and never come out again. <laughs> he, was, uh, he had the shock of you know crazy ginger hair that wafted off to the side. He was slight and ethereal. He was engaging and uh, sensitive. He was uh, all at once welcoming and um, uh, slightly uh, melancholy. And uh, I said to him, I watched a young Frankenstein. Uh, I said, a young Frankenstein, you, you did such a brilliant job writing that picture of da da da. And he goes, I watched it recently. And I thought, fuck you you watched it two nights ago like I did because the show was over and you went back to your hotel and there's five fucking channels in this country. You flipped around and there it was. And brilliantly, he said to me, I thought I was a little one note. And I was like, you know, it's genius, da, da, da. Then I said, do you share my opinion that Richard Pryor is the greatest comedian of all time? And he went, because he didn't answer things quickly Gene Wilder considered everything he thought about because he was a considered individual and he went I do (laughs) and then I said in those pictures you did with him did you improvise and he went "Mm -mm, I don't improvise I said well what about all the dynamic interchanges between you he's like Richard would throw me a line and I'd respond with a line but I'm not Big on improvising And I said But you're such a funny Funny comedian And he went I'm not a comedian I'm an actor (laughs) Right? So I'm like (laughs) (laughs) So I asked him about Willy Wonka And now you've read this story A million times Because it's been on the interweb A million times But he told it to me In a dressing room In 1996 in London He goes Mel Stewart was a documentarian And I knew he hadn't made a comedy picture. So when we got on the set, I said to him, in the beginning when I come out and my characters introduced, I want to do this bit where the cane sticks in the ground and I flip over. And Mel Stewart went, why? And this is how he described it to me. Now, mind you, I've read it a million times this week. But this is how Gene Wilder said it to me in the room. To the best of my recollection, Senator. (laughs) He goes, and, I, and the cane sticks on the ground, and I've come out like I'm, uh, I can't walk, and uh, something's wrong. And then I flip over and I jump up, because then you'll never know. what. Everything I say after that might be a lie. You will never know whether I'm lying or not. Mm-hmm. And then he said to me, Mel Stewart went, okay, all right, I, okay, let's do it. And he goes, he did it 14 fucking times. (laughs) On those cobbles in that set in Germany, he did that fucking head roll, shoulder roll, which he does. If you've seen the movie, he does the shoulder roll. And he pops up every time with the hat off. And he goes, then Mel Stewart said to me, will you do it once without it? And he went, Greg, I didn't want to do it without it because I knew that would be the one he would use. So I'm like, all right, Mel. And so he did one without it. And then he went, luckily, he didn't use that one. And that was how he told it to me, that it was, that he did, he does one where he comes out and just goes like that. And everybody, uh uh-huh. ha. But the one that's in the movie, and the reason why you remember this movie, and Jennifer and I have been talking about the movie, and of course, uh, he's in loads of good movies, and he's a superb writer, and he's, a, he's an actor, he's a writer, he's a director, he directed movies. He's a wonderful uh, performer all around. There's no denying any of Gene Wilder's immense talent. However, what we uh, the, the picture uh, the, the cat who played uh, Charlie in the movie said, "I don't think it's his favorite movie." But he was aware that it's the one that everyone will remember because of the legacy of children. Right? Uh, generations have watched it over and over and over again. And I saw it in the movie theater when I was ten years old at the Redwood Cinema uh, in Redwood City. On a double bill with H. R. Puffin Stuff, the movie, and so my memory of it is vivid. Mama Cass Elliot is in the movie H. R. Puffin Stuff, uh, which is and has a ring in it at one point with carrots. It's an 18, a fourteen-carat ring, and she goes and eats the carrots. Billy Hayes, the immortal Billy Hayes. In any case, uh, uh, I was talking to Jennifer about it. And uh, Willy Wonka is brilliant for a thousand reasons. Of course, Roald Dahl's book is uh, astounding and bitter and uh, totally cynicism for children, right? Children are not uncynical. The thing that I detest uh, about the way children are characterized is that uh, at any point when you were a child and an adult went, well, how are you today, little lady? How are you, big man? You were like, fuck to the you, to the you, to the you, to the fuck (laughs) to the you. You want all adults to come at you like they were Mickey Rourke. You know what I mean? Like, are you having a beer? I can't drink, I'm eight. That's what you want as a child. You don't want any of the fucking adult imperative, or you don't want, hey there, little soldier. How's our little tiger today? None of that shit. <laughs> now, I was raised to have manners, right? My father and mother, I'll, I'll God rest them, uh, did say, it was please and thank you, and yes, sir, yes, ma'am. We, there were, you didn't, you did not, when an adult addressed you, you fucking addressed them back. Uh, you didn't do the bullshit of today's amorphous fucking parents who have indulged themselves so much in their own ego. When you say, hi, how are you today? How are you, little uh, Hunter? and Hunter goes "Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm." that fucking bullshit we weren't allowed to pull that fucking amphibious bullshit no grabastic fucking well they're just a kid no after the age of five they're sentient beings who can talk and have a vocabulary you're not just a kid anymore and what you should be aspiring to from the age of five onwards is to grow up And have a vocabulary and be able to interact with other people. You shouldn't be concentrating on playing with your thumb or wearing galoshes every day to school or some bizarre shit your parents dumped on you. You're not the emotional repository of your parents' insecurities. And if you are, I feel bad for you and you should snap the fuck out of it. This is how you should respond if an adult goes, how are you today? Fine, and you? How do you do? It is my pleasure to meet you. And I'm not fucking kidding. And I know you're all like, but isn't that uncustomarily customarily harsh for children? No. Um, discipline, parameters, and fucking structure are what children crave. What they do not crave is grabastic, quinoa-laden bullshit. <laughs> they need to know when they have to go to bed. They need to know when they've transgressed. When a child is rude or impertinent, yes. When they're messy or icky or profane or squanchy or shit on the floor, they need to have their shit handed to them. And they explained why. I don't mean stern discipline and I don't mean hitting in any way. I mean discipline. Discipline. Discipline is not a terrible thing. Think of every artist that you love. David Bowie, uh, Prince, uh, Joni Mitchell. What do they all have in common? An intense discipline to their craft. They went home and wrote. Not like you, you piece of shit. (laughs) Discipline is not an amorphous bad thing that's inflicted on you by a higher power. Discipline is a calling. And when you have children, I have children. Friends with their <laughs> with various types of children some of whom when you go how are you today they go oh, 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 oh. some of whom ignore you completely and act like you didn't speak to them unacceptable un fucking acceptable. and some of whom go great but what I'm only sorry about is that my parents are the way they are you know what I mean <laughs> they're that hip they're that hip to the jive am I wrong or am I wrong I'm not wrong I'm right and you know I am. Uh, children are nature's gentlemen and they can teach us everything and the most important thing in your life and Gene Wilder taught us this more than any other actor is to always have a sense of childlike grooviness and wonder about you at all times the thing about the world that's exciting is that aside from the taxes and the bills and your boss and the bullshit and the gas thing and the guy who cut you off and the people who are dicks and your ego being crushed and all your plans going to shit and everything you did uh, turning out wrong that you expected, and regrets from your life from years ago. Aside from all those things, is the idea that a summer zephyr might waft by you, or a butterfly might land on your hand, or uh, that you might dance with someone wildly until you cry laughing. There's all those things that when you're a child, come so fucking easily. When I was on the playground, the idiot kid would always uh, uh, offer to eat a caterpillar for a nickel. Now... (laughs) I never paid for it, but I understand the impulse. And that's the thing that Gene Wilder encompassed and embraced and that we all have to hold in our heart. You don't want to let your heart become so hardened that you actually believe the things that adults say. And it's important as an adult not to believe the things adults say. You didn't when you were little because you had a bullshit detector. I was on a Nickelodeon show. We're going to get back to Gene Wilder. I was on a Nickelodeon show. This is all about Gene Wilder, and uh, what he knew. And I played a, a, a character who uh, ran a, a, a design house. Uh, I was a designer, and as I said to the producers, my character is neither Jewish nor gay. Would you care to explain? <laughs> and I hire a young girl to be the designer and uh, she was the designer so I was surrounded by teenagers and kids on the show there were kids the whole time I had to do scenes with hamsters horses I had to be lifted with a sling on my balls into the air I had to be lifted on a fucking uh, 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 what do they call those chairs a chaise like a little the, the ones that have the horrible cross hatching via uh, balloon and shit like uh, you know it was, a, it was fantastic but what I love most of all uh, that all aside besides the colorful costumes, many of which I got to keep, was (laughs) children came every week live to the show. So the whole audience would be five to seven. So there'd be children falling asleep two hours into it, which was fantastic. And then seven-year-olds. And I would do funny turns and funny walks. And my main impetus, I wrote a list before I started the show, and I'm telling you way too much here, but at the top of the list was Gene Wilder. And then below that was... Charles Nelson Riley. Gail Gordon, yeah, Paul Lind. I went. I made a huge list of everyone funny. Right? That w- was outrageous. Uh, Hal Perry, who played the Great Gildersleeve, because he would go yes. Uh, Frank Frank Nelson, who was on the Jack Benny Show, uh, a, a million actors. And whenever I got lost and I didn't know what to do in a scene, I would look at my list. And that's you know I'm, maybe I'm not Stanislavski, but I would go. How would Gene Wilder do this fucking scene? Because it was a kiddie show, and you had to do. There's a pony in the scene, so you have to go mm, wrong. Right? Who's <laughs> Gene Wilder? Because he's the king of misdirection. Uh, and Gil Gordon would be like, hell. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you telling us this? Because a seven-year-old doesn't bullshit you. If it's not funny to a seven-year-old, they go, this sucks, let's go home! (laughs) (laughs) Hollywood people will lie to you because that's what our business is. They'll go, oh my God, it was so great tonight. Really nailed it. And they'll do polite laughter. They'll go, ha, 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 you know, adult laughter. When we, Oh, no, it should be funny here. It should be funny, so we're going to fucking do that. The table read, laugh. So, when you play for kids, if you did a slapstick gag, and we did lots of slapstick, I remember one kid yelled out when we did a fucking fall, Like, I think we all fell into a couch and balloons shot up or something, or ping pong balls or whatever. A kid in the audience went, oh, my God! <laughs> in a seven-year-old's register.
1: Oh, my God!
0: I was never happier in my life. As a comedian, I've been a comedian a long time. I was never happier because a seven-year-old pissed himself. (laughs) Couldn't believe it. Didn't see that one coming. And by seven, you've seen a lot of gags. You're an expert by seven. You're a fucking expert. And I think Gene Wilder uh, really brought that Uh, to the fore I also uh, uh, was able to get a picture with him two pictures one uh, backstage where he put his arm around me and the other one he got into his costume of the laughter on the 23rd floor where he played Sid Caesar uh, in the play the character of Sid Caesar and uh, there was one of me and him in that outfit as well so he was the most kind and generous um, the most insightful and astute the most beautiful and giving uh, in, a, in a short interview and a thing backstage. And then part of the reason he had agreed to do the interview for this uh, corporate thing was that he had a friend who was, uh, uh, had cancer, and they were, he made a video for that friend. So he put on his outfit for the play, and he went on stage, and we all stood there while he gave uh, his friend an upbeat message, which was sent to his friend by the company I was working for at the time. And if that, if you don't think it was moving, it was ridiculous. I mean, Gene Wilder came out and went, Hi. We're all here in London, you know, and did one of those. And it was just extraordinary. Like, Gene Wilder uh, was fantastic. Um, this is what he said uh, about uh, Zero Mustel and the producers. And the producers might be, I don't think it's Mel Brooks. I think it's Mel Brooks' like, most visceral, fantastic movie. But I think Young Frankenstein is the most beautifully drawn because it's uh, a, like a piece of cinema, whereas the producers has a sort of fantastic slapdash quality that uh, makes it power along. Zero Mostel is, of course, uh, like being on stage or on screen with uh, a, 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 a rampant male baboon.
1: Yeah.
0: He's grabbing you by the collar and he's shaking you. And Gene Wilder is the perfect counterpoint to Zero Mostel in the movie. The, if you've seen the producers, you know that the crux of the movie is their love affair. They meet, they're wary, they fall in love, they have a relationship, they try to pull off the biggest thing ever. When it doesn't work out, then there's the aftermath of it, and they're still in love at the end. And Mel Brooks is smart enough to know, because he's a, that good of a filmmaker, that the greatest scene in the movie is the scene at the fountain, uh, in front of Lincoln Center, when uh, uh, Leo Bloom, Gene Wilder, agrees to perform the crime with Zero Mostel, and the fountain goes off. And they replay it at the very end of the movie again, like Rocky fucking horror. They play the fucking time warp one more time, because he knows that you're going to cry, and it's so true. Um, Young Frankenstein is uh, you know, a different egg entirely, but this is what Gene Wilder said about Zero. You may have heard stories about how bombastic, aggressive, and dictatorial Zero might be. It didn't happen with me. He always took care of me. I loved him. He looked after me as if I were a baby sparrow. <laughs> that makes me love the movie a thousand times more, more than I already do, and I've seen it a billion times. Um, here's what I want to play for you. Uh, it's, uh, it's the uh, magical boat ride cut, but will you go to 225, you have to, you have to fast forward to 225. You'll all remember this. It's from the movie Willy Wonka and in the movie Willy Wonka uh, he's a reverse Wizard of Oz in the Wizard of Oz there's a lot of build up for the Wizard of Oz and you don't know who he is he's just because because of the wonderful things he does and then when you get there you realize that he's trying to scare them to death with a series of bad special effects and then when we meet him you realize that he's a kind hearted gent who only wants to help Dorothy and helps the scarecrow the lion and the tin woodman by boosting their confidence in an early 20th century Dale Carnegie way by going if you only believed in yourself, I'll give you this bizarre symbol, and this bizarre symbol will be the emblem of your fucking emotional regrowth. And then with Dorothy, the terribly disappointing oh my god, we're going back to Kansas, where the Elvira Gulch thing isn't resolved, and where she's sure to die in terrible boredom and marry a horrible guy. Um, But the point is in Willy Wonka he's evil and malicious he's magical and pernicious he it doesn't ever come forward with what he actually thinks at one point my favorite line one of my favorite lines in the entire movie is of course um, "Too bad little children gone Three good little children left. That's in a children's movie where he's giving them prizes. Three good little children left like they're all going to die. And then uh, there's so many scenes in the movie where eminent death is about to happen and he just... That's not the Wizard of Oz. And then at the end of the movie, spoiler fucking alert, when Charlie gets in the great glass elevator with him, and he says, or, or before that, when he has the gobstopper, and Charlie puts the gobstopper back in the, on the table after the good day scene, um, Gene Wilder puts his hand on it and goes, so Sean's a good deed in a weary world. And that's where Gene Wilder is genius. And then opens his arms and goes, Charlie, you want." and hugs him takes him in the elevator and then do you ever hear about the story about the man who got everything he ever wanted he lived happily ever after the Wizard of Oz couldn't have done that Will Ferrell couldn't have done and I'm not singling out Will Ferrell but I'm saying (laughs) Gene Wilder is why why that movie is fucking incandescent he can do the emotional business there's no feigning warmth You cannot feign warmth on screen. You can manufacture it. You can do a million things with it. But the reason why everybody loves Willy Wonka, and we're not even going to discuss the other version, is that Gene Wilder provides not only the maliciousness and the cynicism and the absolute, basically, enthusiasm towards something awful might happen to every bad child. Because all these children are bad and deserve what they get. Here, Here, spin the scene. This is the boat when they get on the boat. And all the lizards appear And shit like that Turn this shit way up
1: <laughs> Which direction
0: we are going There's no knowing Where we're rolling Or which way the river's flowing
1: Is it raining Is it snowing Is a hurricane of blowing a speck of light is showing so the danger must be growing. Are the fires of hell Are glowing? Is the grisly reaper mowing? Yes! The danger must be growing for the rowers keep on roaring!
0: We're here. Uh, Yeah. That hysteria that he brings to young Frankenstein. Life.
1: Life. Give my creation life.
0: Uh, This is written by Veruca Salt. Her name is um, Julie Cole. And uh, she was in the picture with him. Uh, Gene was sweet Patient and tolerant He was a generous Spirited man Great fun And spoke to the kids As adults He never patronized us And we always vied For his attention There was a constant race To get our schoolwork done So we could go hang out With him And there was never Any go away Don't bother Mr. Wilder Who was always Very amenable He had five kids On the set right He didn't sit in a trailer But had a chair Like the rest of us Gene had no ego Which is pretty extraordinary For someone so talented Gene wasn't a method actor And did take direction Excuse me Um, When he went slightly loopy, whether that was... uh, We never knew what we were going to get from him, particularly the boat scene that I just played for you. When he went slightly loopy, whether that was improvisation or not, I'll never know, but we certainly didn't see it coming. The next time you watch it, watch everyone's reaction in the scene to him. (laughs) Is the grizzly reaper mowing, and then he goes... Like that, and everyone in the boat goes like this... The whoever heard of a Snosberry line is my favorite line in the movie, and maybe my favorite line in all of children's cinema. I do remember him taking the Mickey when I had to do a whoever Snosberry. He knew I couldn't put my tongue back because they'd painted it with red food coloring. He'd do things to um, try and make me laugh, which was funny and annoying. Yeah. They're walking down the hallway, and he's going, there's so much to do, so little, so up For a minute, this wallpaper—the fruit tastes like real fruit. The banana, uh, the, the the whatever he says, the raspberry tastes like raspberries the snozzberries taste like and you hear them all comment and Charlie licks it and goes this banana's terrific or whatever and he goes the snozzberries taste like snozzberries and Veruca turns and goes with her tongue stuck out whoever heard of a snozzberry and he grabs her and her tongue stuck out and goes we are the music makers and we are the dreamers of dreams and there's nothing like that in any children's movie one no one quotes Arthur O'Shaughnessy to children (laughs) And two, it's everything that I was talking about before About children and how they behave She's obviously the brattiest child And the most spoiled child in the world And he calls her on it by saying You're not using your imagination You're licking the wall And you're saying there's no such thing as a Snodsbury. I know I made it up Vermicious canids, remember that part (laughs) One wouldn't think of eating a a Vermicious canid would eat six of the in a sitting Vermicious canids What is it, the other thing? Is this some kind of fun house? And Gene Wilder goes, Why? Are you having fun? (laughs) And Violet has the other great line when the boat's going, Is this some kind of freak out? (laughs) Mr. Walker, can we? I'm sorry, I'm a trifle deaf in this ear. You'll have to speak a little louder. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then of course when Violet turns into a, a blueberry Violet you're turning Violet Violet <laughs> and then the Oompa Loombas roll her over to him and he goes take Miss Bergard down to the juicing room and then the Oompa Loomba says something no of course I won't hold you responsible
1: <laughs>
0: adieu adieu parting is such sweet sorrow
1: <laughs>
0: and then <laughs> When Veruca gets dropped in the 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 goose with the eggs or whatever, and she gets dropped in the egg and it goes bad, and uh, uh, and she goes shooting down. I want it now. He goes, uh, um, what's down there, Wonka? Oh, the incinerator. Incinerator. Well, it only operates every other day, so she's got a good sporting chance. <laughs> On my 13th birthday in 1971, he arranged for color stills, which were very rare to be taken, and gave me a set of them as my present. It was a lovely gesture, and I still have them all. I filmed my favorite scene that same day when I finally get my comeuppance and go down the garbage chute. Everyone sang happy birthday before shoving me down it. (laughs) Uh, We were happy to hear from him. It was the first time. uh, Let's see. When we saw Willie, since we filmed Willy Wonka, I saw him twice in person. Get ready to cue up the last one there. In fact, you can start playing it now. Once was in 1996 when he headed a production of Laughter on the 23rd Floor in London's West End. I went to say hello to him backstage, and he gave me a big hug. Go ahead and start spinning that last one. And he said, "Well, I guess Veruca wasn't such a bad egg." I saw Gene again a few years ago. He was on the British chat show this morning, and he was so sweet and gave me the biggest hug and held on tightly to my hand. I'm no longer acting. Uh, I'm a child therapist. But when we mention, uh, we call it the Willy Wonka effect. When you tell someone you were in the movie Willy Wonka, they'll be having a bad day. They'll smile. I'm still in touch with the other children, and in a few weeks, I'm traveling to the U.S. to see Mike TV and Violet Beauregard. We'll raise a glass to Gene and relive all our favorite moments all over again. It will be bittersweet. Gene Wilder is swirling in the heavens tonight. You've been the smartest crowd in the world. I've been the smartest man in the world. Thank you very much for coming out. Thank
1: you.